You may be seated. Amen. And as you're seated, if you have your Bibles, you can turn open or turn on with us to uh, 1 Corinthians 13. We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians 13. It's a famous passage uh, speaking about love. And as you do, uh, when I was a uh, youth and children's minister, um, one of my responsibilities at our church is every Sunday we would have the children's sermon. So maybe you grew up or have seen this before, but all the kids would come down front and they'd sit around the altar and I would do a children's sermon and then we would go out and have children's church right before uh, the big people's sermon. And uh, the, 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 the joy that I got out of the, the sermon was kind of correlated to the, the pain and the anxiety it caused in parents, because one of my favorite things was to try and get the t kids talking, because you had no idea what they were going to say. And one particular Sunday, our theme was on Jesus' commandment that we need to love our enemies. And so call them all four. We were sitting down and said, kids, today we're going to talk about Jesus commanding us to love our enemies. Do you know what an enemy is? And one of the kids shot up his hand and says, uh, my dad has an enemy. It's Mr. Smith. <laughs> and Mr. Smith's family was in the room. And then that started this cascade of, of responses where, oh, yeah, my dad said his lawn is terrible. And, well, my dad doesn't like... He thinks so-and-so, and it was almost like it had gotten, like the milk had been spilt, and I could not get it back and recover. And so even the kids know what it is to have an, have an enemy. And our theme this morning, um, we're talking about 1 Corinthians 13, and you might be thinking the best context for 1 Corinthians 13 is in the context of a wedding or on a, a Hallmark movie or a Valentine's card. But actually, the proper context for 1 Corinthians 13 is within a church where there's lots of enemies, and it's known. And so what we're doing this, this winter, our winter theme, is that we want to experience the transforming power of the gospel. And if you're going to experience it, you have to know how sin is seeking to bind and break you. And once sin entered into the world, it set in motion a cascading series of relational breaks. So our first relationship with God is broken. And then that filters into our relationship in our own self, our self, our soul is broken. And it funnels out into our relationship with others. And what we've seen the last three weeks is that restoration through worship and repentance and forgiveness brings the restoration with our relationship with God, and then it heals our soul, and then now we're going to look at how that spills out into the transformation of our relationships. So what Christianity is, is an interconnected set of radically altered relationships where they all come together in this new relationship with God, new relationship with your own self, and then new relationship with others. And they all fit together. And here in 1 Corinthians, Paul paints one of the most profound and powerful pictures of what the renewed community looks like when re relational restoration happens. So let's, let's open it up and look. And as we do, you know, one of the, the amazing dynamics of the way the gospel works is that what we need first to, to experience the beauty 
and the and the the majesty and the glory of who Jesus is and what he's done to us we have to first experience it and then we have the ability and the power to express it to others so when we go through the, these things the gospel dynamic is we experience it from him first and then we express it out and Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 is going to set it up let me show you a more excellent way there's a better way. There's a better path than how you see how you're relating right now, how you see relationships unfolding in your life, in your world, all around you. There is a superior way of being, a superior way of living, a superior way of loving. So what he's trying to do, uh, David celebrates, you've made known to me the path of life. He's trying to bring us back and put us on the path of life, the path of love that brings life. So let's read it together. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. If I give away all I have, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. Or keep a record of wrongs is another way of saying resentful. Doesn't keep a record of wrongs. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it'll pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes... The partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. So if we're going to get a sense of the, this chapter, what it means and feel and experience its force, I mean, one thing we just have to get our bearings on where it is and its point. Um, as I mentioned earlier, you know, this is a misunderstood chapter. It's familiar. It's often read, but seldom understood and rarely practiced. And I think one of the reasons is because it's often read and placed in kind of out of context. Even joke, you know, you, you normally hear this at a wedding or think it should be on a Valentine's card. But what Paul is doing in Corinthians is he's addressing four major issues that are happening within this church. The first major issue is they're having factions and divisions over their, their leaders. Who's following this person? Who's following this one? There's major di uh, divisions and difficulty over the nature of marriage and divorce and sexuality. There's major questions about how we're supposed to live faithfully in the midst, in the midst of an aggressively pagan society. And then the final section is on how are we supposed to worship? There's things that are supposed to happen when we come together and worship. There's all types of dysfunction when they gather together on the Lord's day to worship. 
And where 1 Corinthians 13 is, it's right in the middle of that worship section. It's right in the middle of what happens when the Lord's people gather together to worship. And so the issues that they're wrestling with and fighting over is the, uh, the nature of women's dress, the type of clothes they're wearing, the use of gifts, who should be the ones who get to sing, who gets to preach, who gets to speak. There's factions at the Lord's Supper and cliques and divisions. So in that context, Paul comes. And there's two fundamentals that he lays out. It's fascinating the way you watch how Paul deals with the problems that they're experiencing in the church. In 12 through 14, uh, it's structured, a beautiful chiastic structure where 13 is right at the middle, right at the heart. And what he doesn't do is say, all right, here's the problem. Here's how I want you to work it out. He kind of lays out the problem and then gives them the fundamental posture of their heart and kind of the theological reality that's supposed to shape all they do. And then kind of expects them to be able to work it out once they have that in place. And so two of the key fundamental things that he puts is our worship. When you come together, the whole point is to build one another up in love. So if that's not happening, everything else is irrelevant. The point of you gathering together is the building one another up in love. That's why the gifts are given. That's how you use them. Everything should be done in love. So what's the context for 1 Corinthians 13? The context is for uh, any group, especially a church, anytime a people are trying to come together, what Paul is trying to do is trying to show a group of self-centered people that there is a better way to live. I remember, if you remember the Burners, Noah and Tiffany, you know, one of the sweetest, loveliest, kindest couples uh, on the planet. And this was their passage for uh, their wedding. And I kind of joked because I said, reading this passage at your wedding is completely out of context. Because the point of this passage is how, um, how can, uh, how do you live well when you're around difficult people? And you two are the most, like, non-difficult people on the planet to get along with. So it's not in the context for their wedding. But you might be like my wife and think, well, my wedding, it would be a context if you live around other difficult people. So that's the point. How do you live with difficult people? So let's look at the structure. Did you see as we read through this very clear structure? Verses 1 through 3 give you the necessity of love. Four through seven paint its character. This is what it is. And then eight thirteen, eight through thirteen celebrate its permanence. So let's take a couple minutes and we'll just kind of the linger on one through three and look at how did you notice love is better. This ordinary love is better. This gift, no, the first thing, this gift of ordinary love is better than we'll call this extraordinary worship. If I speak in tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I am a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And in verse 2, if I have prophetic powers. So two types of skill with speech. He's talking this type of speech. Maybe if, if in, in the context of worship, is if I have incredible singing, like we speak and the, the, the quality of the music lifts us up into heaven. Or if I can speak with such prophetic power, even if we have those, but don't have love, we have nothing. Noisy gong, clanging cymbal. 
And so what's interesting about the Corinthians is they knew all about rhetoric, the ability to have powerful, persuasive speech. And this is something to some degree is kind of lost on us because in the first century Greco-Roman world, there were not many opportunities for you to rise above your station. For the most part, whatever class, and it was a class society, it wasn't ethnic, it wasn't race, it was a class society, and whatever class you were born into, for the most part, you were, you were stuck there. And there's only a few pathways to elevate out of the class you were in if you were in one of the lower classes. And one of those pathways, one of the few, was rhetoric, to be trained in the ability to speak. And so, for example, in Corinth, you know, they had the Isthmian Games, which was as big in that world as the Olympic Games. It was for their little corner of the world. It was a worldwide phenomenon, and the whole um, city and community was shut down. In their world, it was as big as the World Cup is. And what's interesting about these games, the... The glory, like if you wanted glory, the, the person, in essence, who would receive the most glory would be the person who would give and deliver at the beginning and the end of the games, the enconium. This was the public celebration and praise of the emperor. So it, it's almost like the games didn't matter. What mattered was that celebration and who got to do that. Probably the, like our closest parallel would be how we think about the Super Bowl. But really, the, the whole point of the Super Bowl is whoever gets to perform at the halftime show. I mean, so for some of you, that's the only thing that matters. Like when we watch the Super Bowl, Cynthia doesn't really watch the game, but then tunes in for the halftime show, which always, well, the halftime show just in general aggravates me because it's a big, obnoxious waste of time. <laughs> But like if you live in the world where like in this world, like the game wasn't really the point. It was that ceremony and the highlight, the, the pinnacle was who gets to, to deliver that public oration. And so rhetoric was a pathway to public glory. It's how it's how somebody like Augustine, who could be born in the bottom of society and elevate to the very top. It was that pathway. And then what Paul says, even if I can do that, like if I am the greatest orator who's ever lived, but don't have love, I'm just a noisy gong, clanging cymbal. You think a gong, you probably think big metal, like dong, dong. You know, gong, is, it, was, it was same word for that, but also it was a big brass megaphone, so you didn't have public amplification, so you'd have these big brass megaphones that you would speak through. And he says, if I don't have love, that's all I am. That's all I am, clanging symbol. Even if you achieve the highest heights of public celebrity, without it, it's useless. The gift of ordinary love, better than this extraordinary worship. The gift of ordinary love, better than extraordinary wisdom. Notice in verse 2, if I have prophetic powers and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And you think this skill, this is someone who, has, who would have reached the, the heights of either academic or even business success. You know, someone who can understand all mysteries. 
and all knowledge. This isn't celebrating like uh, glorified Sherlock Holmes. You know, mysteries is the ability to come and, and see something that uh, is a problem, and then you then have the ability to, to solve it. And this is celebrating a certain type of worldly wisdom. And just like in Paul's day and our day, I mean, we need that. I mean, think about in our world, if you can solve problems, what type of uh, fame and glory and heights can you achieve? And notice all. They can unravel all mysteries, all knowledge, all faith. There's no problem that can be placed before them that they can't unravel. Mysteries, knowledge, faith. This, this ordinary love is better than this extraordinary wisdom. So you could be the ultimate fix-it man or fix-it woman, the person called in in any scenario, in any situation, and you can right the ship, and you can bring institutional health, and you can solve the problem. Even all of that, it's nothing. Then notice the, the third thing. We'll start with faith. If I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I have nothing. And if I give away all I have, if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. And you see, just this ordinary love is better than these extraordinary works. Look at the three things that he celebrates. What if I could do? First is you have great faith. He's talking about mountain-moving faith. And in one hand, from a spiritual perspective, they had all experienced this. That's what Paul did. It was a miracle that any of them were even there and had responded to the gospel. So this is mountain-moving faith. But that context, if I have all faith and can move mountains, that's really uh, what he's talking about is somebody, if you have this incredible visionary leadership and you can see what needs to be done and you can rally the troops and you can, you can bring about this incredible uh, thing out of nothing. You know, when Jesus originally told his disciples, when he says, if, if you have faith the size of the mustard seed, you can move mountains. You know, he did that on the Mount of Olives. And one of the interesting things we saw when we were in Israel is uh, from where he is sitting, you could look to Bethlehem and you could see in the distance the Herodian. And the Herodian was Herod's uh, final palace, you know, Herod the Great, um, which he... He named himself the great. So just, faith, you know, worldly wisdom, if anyone names himself the great, be a little leery. And so, uh, and what he was great was his great building projects. And the culmination of his building projects was the Herodian, which was his final kind of, in essence, fortress and tomb. And it was one of the great wonders of the world, even though it didn't uh, last very long. But you could see, pull up, uh, Liz, pull up the first picture. So this is from the Mount of Olives, and you can see, and you see you have one mountain there, and then the Herodian is at the top of, it got put at the top of the other one. And those were equal. And what he did is they, they leveled the one mountain to bring it over to the other to build up the Herodian. Now, it was an immense project that took generations. And you know what else it took? Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of slaves. Now, pull up the next image. This is the actual Herodian that didn't stand but was on top and then built in. And it was considered, you know, one of the most uh, dazzling, impressive fortresses of the day. So what Jesus is looking to, and I think well, there's an echo here from Paul, is he's saying from a worldly perspective, you could look at these massive building projects and say that is the most unbelievable thing in the world. But if you have that without love... You have nothing. 
And then notice the great gifts. It, it almost doesn't seem possible that you can give away all that you have, but then gain nothing. I mean, you could be the most philanthropic person in the world and utterly give your life away to others, but somehow can still not do it in love. And then what he says, even if I suffer and deliver up my body, I put my, you know, I put my money or put my money where my mouth is. I put my mouth where my money is and I give both of them away and give up my body to be burned. You can still do that in a way that you don't have love. And it's something that it's like if this wasn't in the Bible, I wouldn't believe it. So just one minute, is it possible to do all of these things? And I wonder how Paul would say the same thing to us now. I mean, he might say something like, you know, if I appear on television daily, but have no love, then I'm just a talking head. If I appear before sold out shows, but have no love, I'm nothing. If I can heal the sick, but have no love, I'm actually more sick than my patients. If I can lead with all vision and wisdom, but have no love, I'm going nowhere. If I can decide or if I can dedicate my life to bring about global peace and accomplish it, but without love, I've accomplished nothing. It's an extraordinary statement. So even as we listen to it, we think, all right, if, if I can do all of those and still not measure up, then what hope is there for me or you? You know, have you conversed with angels recently? Have you led projects that moved mountains? Or do we even realize that even the good things that we've done, if we do it with too little love? And the problem is we can't really work this up from our, our heart. Even our most impressive acts are nothing without real love. And so what is real love? Well, it's patient and it's kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant. It's not rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoings, but rejoices with the truth. Seems so ordinary. Ladies, you can pull up the next, uh, the next slide about what love is. And, um, you know, one of the interesting kind of thing, you can't, it's, there's, Paul's engaging in some a little divine irony. He's kind of poking at them because one of their critiques of Paul is that he's not eloquent. He, he, he's, not, he's not a great um, rhetorician. He wouldn't impress anybody with his speech. And then he busts out because this chapter in 13, uh, you see it in the, you can really see it in the Greek. It's, it's, it's written as a poem and it's one of the most poetic pieces of literature ever written in history. It's just marvelous and it has this majestic music that just sings and I won't try and read it in the Greek because I don't speak English well enough to make it sing, much less another language. But it, it's there and he even frames it you know, love is kind, or love is long-suffering, kindness is love, and there's a whole series of it's not, 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 it is, and it has this beautiful movement. But one thing, this is something, if you remember last year, our whole Advent series was on the wonders of his love, and we talked about 1 Corinthians 13, and we did an exercise then that was uncomfortable then, and it probably won't be any more comfortable now. But one thing you can do is you can take that middle section and pull up. We have the blanks. So you can read through this and take out, in essence, everywhere love is and put your name in the blank. 
So we'll try it for a line or two with me. Ben is patient. Ben is kind. Ben does not envy or boast. Ben is not arrogant. Well, we can stop there. <laughs> now actually take a moment and quiet and read it and just put your name in there. How did it sound? How far did you get before you got a little uncomfortable? Now let's try another exercise. Let's pick another name. Anybody want to volunteer for their name to go in? <laughs> let's pick, well, well, let's pick, um, let's say Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not envy or boast. Jesus is not arrogant. Jesus is not rude. Jesus doesn't insist on his own way. He is not irritable or resentful. Jesus does not rejoice at wrongdoings, but Jesus rejoices with the truth. It has a little better ring to it that way. And see, before you can express that kind of love to others, you have to experience it from him. And you will only truly experience this kind of love when you see him being all of those things to you. And you will never, no matter how patient you are, and if you are the most long-suffering and enduring person, you will never be more patient with others than he has already been with you. And no matter how kind you are this Christmas season and you just spread goodwill and cheer everywhere you go, you will never be kinder to others than he's already been kind to you. And you know the reason we don't keep a record of other people's wrongs is because what has he done with the record of your wrongs? He has removed them as far from you as the east is from the west. And as Paul celebrates, he nailed them to the cross and we bear them no more. And so we know that we'll never be able to express this kind of love until we experience it. You know, as when I asked those kids, do you know what an enemy is? And they said, oh, yeah, my daddy has an enemy. You know, you could have asked Jesus the same thing. Do you know what an enemy is? And he could have said, oh, yeah, my daddy has an enemy. And he said, what have you done to or for those enemies? And he might point us, or Paul might remind us in Romans 5, therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God. The enemies, uh, the, the animosity that sin brought into the world has been dealt with. And in verse 5, that the, the love of God has been poured into our hearts. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. And for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one might die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And therefore, since we've been justified by his blood, how much more will we be saved by him from the wrath of God? For while we were enemies, we have been reconciled. To God by the death of his son. How much more will we be reconciled and saved by his life? More than that, we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we've now received the reconciliation. 
So if you want to know what real love is, you don't go to a wedding and look at a bride's white dress. You go to the cross and look at his broken body. You don't look at the gift of red roses. You look at his red blood. You don't look at Cupid's arrows. You look at nails pierced in his hands for us. So every week when we take the Lord's Supper, this is our weekly, tangible, physical reminder. This is the demonstration of what was paid to purchase that kind of love. So we then can be fueled and empowered to go give and express it. So on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Then he took the cup and he said, this represents my blood shed for the forgiveness of your sins. Lord, we thank you for the tremendous gift of your son. And we pray that your Holy Spirit would be poured out into our hearts so that we would know before we try to express this kind of love to others, we would first experience that kind of love from your son. And so we confess to you now that the thing we need this morning more than anything else is more of your love for us. And when that fills us, then we need more of your love uh, for our husband, our wife, our children, our neighbors, our boss, uh, for the lost, for the lonely. Fill us with your love for us and then have your love flow through us to others. In all this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen.